0: The Gospel reading for today is John 7, 1 through 24, and it's found on page 1060. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, "My my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil you go up to the feast i am not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come after saying this he remained in galilee but after his brothers had gone up to the feast they also then he also went up not publicly but in private the jews were looking for him at the feast and saying where is he and there was much muttering about him among the people but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them. I did one work and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances. But judge with right judgment. This is the gospel of the Lord.
1: Good morning, uh, grace and peace. I think uh, I know most of you, but in case I haven't met you, my name's Noah. Uh, like like it says in your liturgy right there. Uh, I've been coming here for about four and a half years since I moved to St. Louis. Um, Just for context, I'm in seminary, so I'm hoping to enter into ordained ministry sometime in the next few years. Um, Right now, my day job is to hang out with college students, so I work for a campus ministry called RUF. And uh, speaking of RUF, I've, I've had many chances to actually teach the Bible there. And I've really loved it. It's helped confirm my sense of call but this is my first time to preach in a proper worship service. We have a professor at the seminary and he's actually jokingly encouraged us up and coming preachers. He says that uh, if our first sermon at our own church goes poorly, we should take heart from the fact that after Jesus' first sermon at his home synagogue, they tried to stone him. So, (laughs) uh, if we avoid any near death experiences for you or me, (laughs) in the next half hour, I will consider today a success. But all joking aside, I I do take seriously um, that I've been invited here to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, I've been loved well by a lot of you in this room, and I hope that God can use this sermon uh, as I seek to love you well with a good word from Scripture. But I definitely cannot do that without him, so if you will, pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you're the God who speaks in Scripture. We thank you for this kind of perplexing conversation um, that Jesus has with the crowds and with the leaders in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths. But I pray you would use this text to change us, uh, to comfort and to convict, to encourage and to exhort. We ask these things um, in your spirit and by your Son. Amen. So I think a lot of you know that I am from Memphis, Tennessee. And I may have told you before that both of my parents are teachers, but I may not have told you that my dad actually also worked a second job for most of middle and high school. He was a valet at the Peabody Hotel in Memphis. And the Peabody is the nicest hotel in the city, so anytime a celebrity comes to Memphis, they tend to stay there. And this meant that my dad had uh, lots of run-ins with famous people over the years. But one time, they do have the ducks, that's correct. (laughs) Uh, One time. When he was working a shift at the Peabody, a normal day, man comes down from his room, he's checking out, he has his bags, and he wants his car, so my dad goes to get it. He brings him his car back. The man gets in his car and leaves, and my dad sees all the other valets who tend to be younger than him, and he goes back to the valet booth, and they're all asking. They're excited. They're eager. Like, how much did he tip you? Did he tip you 100 bucks? Did he give you 200 bucks? And my dad was confused. He was like, actually, no, this guy stiffed me. He didn't tip me. And then they realized that my dad didn't know who it was. They were like, do you not know who that guy was? That's Jim from The Office. And <laughs> this meant nothing to my dad because he does not watch The Office. <laughs> um, and this was well into the early 2010s. So I mean, it was a huge pop cultural phenomenon. My dad should have recognized him, but he didn't. He didn't recognize the person he just encountered. So I don't know if you've had an experience like that where you met someone but you didn't realize until afterward that you were talking to a highly significant person. Um, But something kind of like that happens in this passage today. Jesus goes up to the temple, to Jerusalem, during what is probably the busiest festival of the year. And the people there, even the ones who are actively looking for him, they don't recognize him at first. And even before that, at the beginning of the passage, there's kind of a more metaphorical sense in which his own brothers do not recognize him. And because of that, I think this whole passage suggests a problem to us. People, including you and me, We often don't recognize Jesus, even when he's right in front of us. So as we think about this passage this morning, there's a question we're going to keep coming back to again and again, you're going to hear me say it, and it's this, how do we learn to recognize Jesus? How do we learn to rightly recognize Jesus? So let's just consider this story that John tells in these two dozen verses and how it can help us answer that question. So John opens this chapter by telling us that hostility to Jesus, especially in the center of power in Jerusalem, it's high and it's growing, they're actively seeking to kill him at this point. And that casts a sort of tension over the whole story. And the next thing that John tells us is that it was time for the Feast of Booths, or as it's sometimes called, the Feast of Tabernacles. And Dave explained to us well what this feast is and that it's really the significant setting for this next big chunk of John's gospel that we're starting today. And for our purposes today, what's significant about the Feast of Booths is that it meant there would be a lot of people in Jerusalem In fact, scholars, they think that in the time of Jesus, this was probably the most well-attended of the three annual pilgrim festivals that happened in Jerusalem. Uh, Josephus, he was a historian who lived roughly at the same time as Jesus, and he wrote that entire villages would make the journey together to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. So knowing that, I think it becomes a little bit easier to see exactly what his brothers were asking him to do. They want him to make a big public appearance during the busiest festival of the year. They want him to capitalize on this moment. And honestly, I think it's kind of a fair question. What better time to go into Jerusalem and reveal yourself as the Messiah than when all of Israel will be there? But notice verse five, because I think this is the key to understanding what's happening here. John writes, for not even his brothers believed in him. John wants to make it clear to us that this was not like a misguided request born out of naive faith, or this wasn't like the zeal of a new convert who wants to do big things for Jesus, right? Uh, This is actually a pretty cynical request. If you do these things, Jesus, they might as well say, if you really are who you say you are, Jesus, if you are the one to come and redeem Israel, then why aren't you doing it? What are you waiting on? And it shouldn't be lost on us that it's his brothers who are asking him this. You know, in 2023 in the Western world, we don't tend to judge individuals based on their families very much, but that was not true in Jesus' world. See, for them to find out at first that their brother was the Messiah was probably really exciting, um, it would mean not only glory and honor for Jesus, but for them as his brothers as well. And yet here they are at the Feast of Booths, and Jesus isn't quite playing by their script. So notice how he responds to their request. He says, they want him to reveal himself to the world, but they don't yet know what's going to happen when he actually does that. The world's going to hate him because he testifies to the world that its works are evil. And the time isn't quite right for that yet, so Jesus quite clearly tells them No. I will not be going to this feast publicly." So here I think we see the first answer to our question, how do we learn to recognize Jesus rightly? We have to let go of our worldly expectations. In the case of Jesus' brothers, they had a certain vision of the Messiah that Jesus had to correct. And it was very worldly, it was all about large displays of power and might, probably expelling the Romans from Israel starting in Jerusalem. Now I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you and I don't worry much about what Jesus is going to do to the Romans, uh, but I still think that we have some misplaced expectations of Jesus. At least I do, and you know how I know. Because for some reason, I am still very surprised when suffering comes into my life. When hard things happen, I start trying to think through what I did or what I didn't do, and especially how can I prevent this in the future. Now the New Testament couldn't be clearer that to live the Christian life is to suffer, and yet. In my day-to-day life, when I'm confronted constantly with the call to deny myself, I still think, this isn't right. This doesn't quite feel right. See, I might not want Jesus, the military conqueror that his brothers wanted, but let me tell you, I want the Jesus who will wave his hand and magically take away all of my indwelling sin instead of the real Jesus, the one who lets me struggle so that I might be humbled, that I might learn to rely on him. And sometimes my worldly expectations of him keep me from recognizing the real Jesus who is right in front of me, who does let me struggle, yes, but he's also with me in that struggle. He's letting me see the depth of my sin so that on the other side of struggling, I'm gonna have even deeper joy because I see just how deep his grace goes. See, the real Jesus always turns out to be better than the one we make up in our heads. So as we think about application, I would just challenge you to reflect this week Where might you be placing worldly expectations on Jesus? And how might those expectations be keeping you from recognizing the ways that Jesus is already at work right in front of you? Maybe you're like his brothers and you're expecting something big and flashy and exciting. And because of that, you might be missing the small, the unnoticed, the beautiful ways he's already present in your life and in your relationships. Whatever it is for you, I just invite you to consider how the real Jesus of Scripture is better. So it's not only our expectations that keep us from recognizing Jesus, let's keep walking through this story to see how else we can learn to recognize him. So verse 10, it says, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now before we keep moving, you're probably wondering, what are we supposed to do with the fact that it really looks like Jesus just lied to his brothers? (laughs) He told them he wasn't going to go up to this feast, and then two verses later, he, in fact, goes up to this feast. So what do we do with that? Why does it look like Jesus being deceptive here? And that's a really good question. You know, with any sermon, there's limited time, and you can't go into everything. So I'm not going to go into this too deep. If you want to know more about it, I'll just invite you to send an email, and you can send that to mike at (laughs) graceandpeacefellowship.org. All right landed a joke. It's going okay. (laughs) No, I am kidding. At a quick reading, this is probably the first thing you noticed in this passage. (laughs) It's the first thing I noticed. And for obvious reasons, it unsettles us because we don't like to see Jesus lying. So I will say off the bat, I don't think he's lying. Almost all the commentators agree that when Jesus says he's not going up to this feast, what he means is I am not going up to this feast yet. And in fact, some of your Bibles, I think the NIV and the ESV do this, Um, They include a little footnote that adds the word yet, because the manuscript evidence really is mixed. But even if that doesn't quite settle it for you, there's other good reasons to trust that Jesus is not lying to his brothers. Um, One of them is the word choice. So throughout John's gospel, as we've gone through it, you might have noticed Jesus often says, My hour has not yet come. And sometimes John, as the narrator, says his hour had not yet come. And that's what happens right here, right? Except that it's not. (laughs) What word does he use? He says time. Time. And I know that might feel like I'm splitting hairs, but stay with me. Um, This is actually the only time in all of John's Gospels that he uses that word. It seems to suggest that he wants us to understand that Jesus was saying something a little bit different here than all the other times he's saying it. The big point that John wants us to get, I think, is that Jesus' brothers asked him to go to the feasts in a certain way that we already talked about. And Jesus very clearly tells them he is not going to do that. And then he doesn't. (laughs) The point of verse 10 is that he didn't go publicly, but in private, kind of concealed in some way. But it's actually what starts to happen next once Jesus is at the festival that I think is really more interesting. So John tells us that the Jewish leaders, they're actively looking for Jesus. You kind of get the feel of an inquisition on the hunt. You know, where is he, is what they say. And then the people, they're confused and divided. Some think Jesus is a good man, others think he's some sort of false prophet, but all of them are scared to talk about him openly. So the Jewish leaders, in their zeal to persecute Jesus, they've apparently created some kind of a chilling effect over all of Jerusalem. And I think that speaks to just how openly and aggressively they were seeking him, because apparently everyone knew about it and everyone was scared of it. And I think that actually makes the next few verses so ironic, that you might even chuckle a little bit (laughs) into this tense situation where Jesus is basically Jerusalem's most wanted and everyone is scared to even say his name. What does he do? He goes up into the temple courts and he just starts teaching. (laughs) Now the conversation that follows is still a little bit perplexing, at least it was to me. I was studying this passage for a solid week before I realized that a big part of what is happening in this conversation is that the people Jesus is engaging with do not realize who they're talking to. And I don't mean in the metaphorical sense like they don't believe he's the son of God. Like they don't realize it's Jesus of Nazareth who they've been looking for. You know, this is actually something that happens several times in the Gospels, right? It happens in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. The two disciples don't recognize him. It happens in John's Gospel at the end after the resurrection. Mary mistakes him for the gardener. So we've seen this happen in Scripture. And here in our passage, John's made it clear that the Jewish leaders, they were seeking Jesus aggressively. But when they listened to him teach... They seem to have no awareness that it's him. They call him this man. But even more than that, what helped me finally see what was going on here is verse 25, which we didn't read. After the end of our passage, Jesus says, judge with right judgment, that same conversation is still happening. And it says this, some of the people therefore said, is this not the man who may seek to kill? (laughs) In other words, verse 25, that's when it clicks for them and they realize who they're talking to which means before that, they didn't. So just as an aside, a little helpful Bible tip. Those little paragraph breaks in your Bible can be really helpful. Sometimes they're not. (laughs) Keep reading and you'll get more clarity. Um, So just with that being said, let's return to that big question. How can we learn to recognize Jesus? And let's consider this conversation from two perspectives. First, from the perspective of the Jewish leaders. Notice what they say when they hear Jesus' teaching. How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? I think it's hard not to hear quite a bit of elitism in that statement. If you go to the end of John 7, you'll actually see the same group. They've decided that it's not even possible for a prophet to come from Galilee, which is nowhere in the Old Testament. But on top of that, Jesus didn't teach the way that other rabbis did, so it was considered standard in the first century for rabbis to show that they were learned and scholarly by quoting other rabbis, older ones, more authoritative ones. Originality and novelty in teaching was not a good thing. But as Jesus taught, as the Gospels say, he taught as one who had authority. He didn't need to quote anybody else. And this upsets them. But even as the Jewish leaders seemed to be impressed by whatever he was saying, it says they marveled, their question was not, wait, tell us more, or explain this deeper. It was, how does this man, clearly not a scholar, know all of this? I think their question betrays a pretty prideful heart. Jesus answers that in fact his teaching wasn't his own. It did come from an authority. It was straight from God, which is kind of a trump card. And if there is anyone whose heart is sincerely humble, seeking God's will rather than their own, then they'll recognize the goodness of his teaching. So let's pause because I think we get a second answer to our question. How do we learn to recognize Jesus? I think we've got to let go of our worldly pride. (laughs) Let go of our worldly pride. See, these leaders are too blinded by their pride that looks down on others to recognize that Jesus is right in front of them. I think for them, they didn't recognize him because they didn't expect a working class man from Nazareth to be a compelling teacher, and yet he was. Now, I know none of us like to think of ourselves as condescending people, uh, but here at worship in the presence of God, I would invite us to be reflective and honest for just a minute. I think for most of us, there is at least one person or category of people that when we think of them, the immediate response of our heart is disdain. I know there is for me. I feel pretty convicted by the elitism of the religious leaders in this passage because I grew up in a more low church Baptist background And then I ran off to college and I became Reformed because of RUF. And I'm grateful for that. I think Reformed theology is true and good. It's helped me see just the beauty of Christ way more deeply. But I really struggle with not feeling disdain for non-Reformed Christians. I might still roll my eyes at something that my parents say or do that to me seems a little theologically shallow. And talk about not recognizing Jesus right in front of you. My parents are the people who gave me the Bible. They are the first people who told me that Jesus loves me. We might have some real disagreements about some finer points of how it all works, but they were quite literally the first people to be Jesus to me. <laughs> so it's taken me a while to start letting go of my Reformed pro- pride in that relationship, and the Spirit still has more work to do. And I don't know what it is for you, but I would ask, where might you be blinded by pride in missing Jesus right in front of you? And finally, let's consider this conversation from the perspective of the crowd, See, they don't recognize Jesus either, as we've already said. That's why they're so surprised when he says, why do you try to kill me? What John has told us is that they're scared of the Jewish authorities and that they're divided. Some think Jesus is a good man, but others think he's leading the people astray. Now, there's a really interesting thing about that phrase, he's leading the people astray. Because of the words that are used in Greek there, most commentators see a pretty clear allusion to Deuteronomy 13. And in Deuteronomy 13... God warns in the law that if a miracle worker arises in Israel, but then that same miracle worker encourages the people to worship other gods or to walk in ways contrary to the ways of Yahweh, then they should put that miracle worker to death because God is testing them. Now, obviously, Deuteronomy 13 does not apply to Jesus. I hope you know that I'm not going there. (laughs) But consider this. Just imagine this scenario for a minute with me. You are a first-century Israelite. It's time for the Feast of booths, and you're going up to Jerusalem with your whole family. Once you're there, you hear the rumors. There's a new teacher from the north. The stories sound too good to be true. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. There are even rumors that he might be the Messiah, the one to deliver us from Rome. But the experts in the law, they don't seem to think so. In fact, they're openly opposed to him. One of their main charges is that he's a Sabbath breaker, and this is a serious charge. You know your prophets. Throughout the history of your people, any time God has allowed a foreign nation to rule over Israel, it's because you've been unfaithful to the Torah. You're probably not the biggest fan of the Pharisees and the scribes, but you have to admit they have a point. Perhaps the Lord is only gonna act to deliver us from the Romans when we follow the Torah even more strictly, when we take every precaution, when we build extra walls around the law. If this new teacher from the north really does do his miracles on the Sabbath, then you're not sure what to think about him. You hope he's at the festival so you can learn more, but you're fearful to ask around. The authorities aren't taking kindly to anyone who has anything to do with him. But then it's the middle of the festival. You notice a crowd forming in the temple courts. A man is teaching. He says something you don't quite understand about his teaching being from the one who sent him. The temple authorities are there, but they seem equally as confused as you are. As you move closer to hear more clearly, he starts talking about Moses. He points out one of the most obvious exceptions about the Sabbath that everybody knows. He says, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, and we all agree that this doesn't break the law of Moses, then why are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body healthy again. Wait, what did he say? He made a man's whole body well? Wait, is this... And then just as it dawns on you who this man is, he's the teacher, your eyes meet his. Don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We don't know who was in the crowd that day. I just know that John tells us they were divided and they were scared over Jesus. And if you were in that crowd and you truly weren't sure about Jesus, then I think what he does in these last few verses in our passage it is profoundly compassionate. He answers the charge that he's a Sabbath breaker by rightly interpreting the law. And then by doing that, he also shows he's the true authority on the law, not those who are seeking to kill him under the pretense of the law. And if he is the actual authority, then it makes far more sense to fear him than to fear the ones who claim to be the authorities. So here, from the perspective of the crowd, I think we get a third answer to our question. How do we learn to recognize Jesus? we have to let go of worldly fears. We have to let go of our worldly fears. So the good news is that Jesus is the true authority above every earthly authority who ordains all things. We can trust him even when it's scary. And he actively addresses our fears. See, in this passage, when everyone else is afraid to even talk about him, he stands up and starts teaching. He's not anxious. And he addresses the real questions that people have. He still does that, but you have to be willing to ask those questions. I think we have to wonder if the crowds would have recognized him a little bit sooner if they'd been willing to ask their questions out loud. You know, I I hope Grace and Peace is the kind of church where anyone feels like they can ask those questions. And if you're not a Christian here or you're having serious doubts, I would invite you, uh, tell you it's okay to let go of your worldly fears by asking questions. I can tell you that my experience in this congregation is that it's been a safe place to do that. And if you are a Christian here, which is most of us, (laughs) I would encourage us to let go of our fears by not being afraid of questions. There are a lot of people right out those doors who are looking for meaning and life and truth, and if we believe we really have those things in Jesus, we don't have to be anxious when someone has hard questions. We can just do what Jesus did. We turn to scripture, and as Paul says, we rightly divide the word of truth. So in review, I think we've been asking this big question, how do we learn to recognize Jesus? And it looks like we've got to get rid of a lot of stuff. <laughs> we've, got of, um, we've got to get rid of our worldly expectations, got to get rid of our pride, and we've got to let go of our fears. But there is a key aspect of this story that I think we would be really unwise to miss. No one recognizes Jesus until he reveals himself to them. In that last section when he talks, the only reason they finally recognize him is because he outs himself. He says, I did one work, and you all marvel. And then later, a few lines down, he references the healing he did on the Sabbath earlier in John, and that's when they realize who they're talking to. So don't miss the bigger point. It's only when Jesus reveals himself to us that we can actually learn to recognize him. Another way to put this, sin has not just left us with blurry vision in need of a new glasses prescription. Sin has made us blind. At the beginning of the passage, Jesus' brothers want him to go up to Jerusalem publicly and be lifted up as a king, but their expectations aren't going to be fully transformed until he does just that, but it's not going to look anything like they thought. It's not going to be all white horses and crowns of gold and adoration from the people in a coronation. When his time does fully come, he will go publicly up to Jerusalem at the beginning of a feast, but it's going to be on a lowly colt, and it's going to be a crown of thorns, and the world won't love him, but it's going to hate him just like he said, and he will be lifted up, but it won't be a glorious coronation. It's gonna be a bloody crucifixion. See, the cross is the only thing that will fully open our eyes, because it's at the cross that Jesus fully reveals himself to us. At the cross, our blinding pride is finally dealt with. Our eyes are open to sin as we see what had to be done for us to be right with God. And at the cross, our deepest fears are brought to the surface. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, the deep, universally human fear that we are abandoned by God finds expression in his lips as he dies. They put him in the tomb, and it looks like he's going to stay there. But don't judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. The gospel doesn't end with the crucifixion. Three days later, our expectations aren't just transformed. They are blown out of the water beyond what anyone could even imagine, Death is swallowed up by life, in our pride it becomes joyful, hopeful humility as we bow before this risen King, and all of our fears get relativized because if death is no longer than to be feared, then I don't know what else is, and I can't say it better than Paul, Romans eight, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When our sin left us unable to do anything besides judge by appearances, Jesus came down out of love. And through his life and death and resurrection, he opened our eyes that we might learn, like him and by his spirit, to judge with right judgment. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for what you've done. Thankful that you still open blind eyes. Thankful that you've opened ours. Thank you for meeting us in worship today and giving us a day of rest from our busy lives. Continue to meet us as we take the Lord's Supper. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.